So you know where I want you to turn to this time? We're going to be in two spots. So okay. I want you to turn into Acts. Uh -huh. um, we're in Acts 18 because we're still in this portion in Corinth. And then uh, we're doing an interlude here on Corinth. So I want you to have the handouts I did there on First and Second Thessalonians. So if you can have those and then keep it, keep one. Just keep it in your Bible or fold it, put in your Bible. Because we'll look at that for the next couple of weeks. Because um, this is really now where we're getting into it. Let me, let me just show you. A, well, let's pray. And then I'll show you a little timeline here on Paul's life and the writing of the letters real quick. Father in heaven, we thank you for this glorious day you've given us, a day which you have made. We want to rejoice and be glad in it. You, we're glad when you said unto us, let us go to the house of the Lord. Lord, for here it's where we meet you and your gifts. You meet us and you bring your gifts of grace. So Lord, I ask you to be with Jim, can sustain him here for the rest of this day so his body will hold out and he's able to clearly proclaim your word and promise. Lord, uh, be with all those who are suffering from illness or traveling and all those things, Lord. So give us the energy we need to do the work you've called us to do. Now, Lord, let your word, uh, let us feed upon your word that it might also sustain us and bring us to grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so let me just spend a minute or two here. Some time ago, I gave you a timeline of Paul's life and then how this, how this works in terms of, in terms of his uh, writing of letters and so forth. And so let's take him. We think he's, he's, he's born about 5 B.C. And why don't I have a good one? That was a brand new picture. Okay, that's a good one. And so right here, we're about 35. That's Stephen. Remember, stone? Stephen is the stoning of Stephen. And Paul is doing what? He's holding their coats, right? So Saul holding coats and then he goes and persecutes right he makes the he makes this uh, and then he heads to Damascus <laughs> so Stephen Damascus conversion okay so that's 35 who can tell me the date for Christ's crucifixion crucifixion oh can you remember 33 it's anywhere from 30 to 33 okay Something like that. So you see, this is a couple years after that, after that case. The church has been active and growing, doing those things after Pentecost. So then we have a whole gap of time in which three years later, here in about 38, this is when he begins to go over to Syria and Cilicia. And then he does this. He gets to Antioch in 43. Antioch, remember, what's Antioch? These are just some things I'm trying to teach you in the class. What would you call it in the early church? Mission They're kind of the missionary outpost, missionary center. It's kind of the mission center of the early church. So that's Paul's home church, really, is what we would say. Jerusalem is the head of the church, and Antioch is the mission center of the church. And that always, by the way, always creates a certain amount of tension in the church. Would that, it would be awesome if the center of the church was also the mission center of the church. It almost never is that way. It is, and I mean any denomination, pick one, any denomination, because the center wants to remain the center. And so to remain something, you have to invest on maintaining a thing. You know, and that's always, I've told you this before, it's one of the marks of a healthy or a or a struggling or a, a sick church <laughs> is if the church is spending all its energy just staying alive. 
rather than planting churches, building bridges to their community, sharing the gospel outside. And it becomes challenging because for those people like me as we get older, there comes a point where I'm kind of like, you know what, don't tell me to go start a mission church. Just preach me the word of God and give me a good Bible class and bury me when I'm done, okay? <laughs> I mean, there comes a point. I mean, I'm, I wish it, I hope it doesn't, but it kind of does. Your energy changes and you're just, you're, it's just different, you know? This is why I was laughing. Why do you have children when you're young? You know, I mean, you have, you have the energy to pull it off, you know? Even my little grandson, I'm going, holy cow. Um, <laughs> so I don't have the energy to pull that off anymore. 24-7, um, you know? And then when you got three at the same time, holy cow, good for you. God bless you. <laughs> um, but so it's a challenge, the center and then the mission center of the church. So Paul operates out of there. So first missionary journey then, okay, 46 to 48. And he goes through Turkey, Cyprus and Turkey, okay, southern Turkey. And then, so this is first journey. Then the next journey, right? So then the next journey is going to be 50, 50 to 52. And so here's the interesting thing, right? So here, typically we say 50, 49. This is the Jerusalem Council. Who could remind us the huge thing of the Jerusalem Council? What was the question it was answering? How many laws of the old Jewish faith or practices did you have to follow to be Jewish? To be a Christian. To be a Christian. So how Jewish did you have to be to be Christian? That's a, that's a pedestrian way of saying it. How, how Jewish did you have to be to be Christian? Did you have to be circumcised and so forth? And the question was, no, it's faith that calls a person into relationship with Christ. It's faith that is a relationship with Christ. And they evidenced in the Gentiles, along with those first Jewish Christians. So then you have the second missionary journey. And here's, this is where we're at now, right? So in this one, they head across Turkey again, right? So they head across Turkey. And then they were going to go north, remember, into Asia, like the former Soviet Union. They wanted to go that way. And they were prevented and went to Europe. So then ministry in Europe. So this is really Europe. This is Asia Minor. <coughs> right? So this is Europe, Asia Minor. And then a uh, third one is revisiting and strengthening. Right? Revisiting and strengthening. But in this one, in which we're in, they visit churches like Philippi, big time church, the jail in Philippi. We get Thessalonica. And that's where we're going to be here, that handout that you have on First and Second Thessalonians. Different, different biblical scholars argue whether Galatians was the first letter written, the first recorded piece of the New Testament that we have, or whether it was 1 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians. Because the letters are written probably within months of each other. It's like Paul wrote a thing for 1 Thessalonians, and they didn't quite get it right. And he had to write a follow-up quick to kind of explain it a little bit more. Um, so that's what you get here. So this is Europe. And so here's where we stand. So I'm, I'm a fan. I believe, I believe that Paul does Galatians here, right before the Jerusalem Council. That's my, that's my feeling. And then the next piece of literature written is 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. That's 51. Galatians 49. Okay? And again, my reason for that is if the Jerusalem Council has already happened, he's going to talk about it in this letter to the Galatians. Because he's going to say to them, look, we decided this thing. 
It was great. It was evangelical. It was gracious. It was kind. And he makes no mentions of the decisions at all in there. So just from my perspective, I, I believe that it precedes us. So I think Galatians is first. First and second Thessalonians is next. So and then just to give you an idea here, uh, Paul's life ends here between 65 to 68 Nero, Emperor Nero. So that's where that happens. So we'll fill in some gaps along the way as we go there. So let's go back to Corinth, Acts chapter 18. <clears throat> All right. So he's been in Athens. He was in Athens by himself. Heads to Corinth. And that's where he's rejoined. But he meets a couple of key players, Aquila and Priscilla. I don't know if you're familiar with these pe these folks. I, I, I really, until I went and took actual theology classes, I really was not familiar with these folks. So it was when I was in college that I began taking studies in the New Testament. And these people become kind of key players because they have a significant role in, in several ways. Here's how they play. And it's a husband and wife team. Okay? Husband and wife team. They're tent makers. Okay? So tent making was a significant, um, a significant industry, a significant trade in, that, in the ancient world. Because at the caravansai or the marketplaces, you had to have that kind of things. Tents and coverings, booths, that kind of thing. Even for Jewish festivals and other festivals, people traveling. I mean, people traveled and they used tents. <laughs> you know, a nomadic people traveling for people. There are no Motel 6s all along the way leaving the light on for you. <laughs> and so there are hotels and, and lodges and inns in cities and places, but not along the way often. And so, um, and so this was a significant thing. They also share this uh, trade with Paul. This is Paul's trade himself, how he, how he kept himself going. You should know this too. The, the whole idea of a professional clergy is really, um, is very early, but is not, um, but is not immediate, right? The whole idea of a professional clergy, clergy is kind of a foreign thing until the numbers and the needs get to such a spot that then churches begin asking people to do these things on their behalf. So they arise clearly in larger population areas, places like Athens, Rome, Philippi, these are large Corinth. These are larger communities. But we find them happening fairly soon. In fact, we think the first professional, kind of what we would call professional clergy, laid on of hands, was asked to serve as the pastor, and the congregation said, we will support you so that you can serve us and our community with the gospel. <coughs> right? So you can focus your attention on that. We think it's Timothy. Um, in either Philippi or Thessalonica, Ephesus, one of those areas. We think Timothy's the first kind of paid pastor. So it's interesting because just like anything, they can be great and they can be disastrous, can't they? Things like a, a, a professional clergy. So they can go well, they can go very poorly. Um, the blessing of it, obviously, is that when, so like Paul, when he goes down to Corinth, he takes up with Priscilla and Aquila and is doing tent making, paying his own way, kind of earning his keep. But when the rest of the crew show up, so Silas and Timothy come to join him down in Corinth. Well, then we hear in the text, 
Paul goes back to preaching and teaching full-time. So those guys come. So part of the reason for the team of people going was not that you, you took your four missionaries and they came with 50,000 bucks in their pocket and they did ministry until that ran out. One of them or two of them might be doing the primary preaching and teaching and the other dudes were working. And they were working in order to help fund the ministry that was going so they were not putting the burden on these very, very young congregations. Who, It's just like it is here. We find this true here, uh, and, and Grace is an interesting church. Just, I'll give you a statistical comparison. In general, in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, 80% of our churches baptized two or fewer adults in the last year. Okay? That means bringing a person to faith, okay? an adult person. And typically, so that's not good, right? So that's not a good thing. Even in our case, we feel real blessed. We average about 10 or 12 adult baptisms a year. So we know that people are coming to faith. Now, the other thing that's cool is we also confirm, we confirm about 75% of the people who come to us, who have a public affirmation. They go through a process of confirmation, of study, and then we confirm them. Like, I still, the pastors in town are dumbfounded that I do like 14 weeks. They just say... <laughs> I cannot understand how that happens. And I go, I don't know. I just tell them that's what it is. And then they come. So, <clears throat> But it's interesting because we do confirm about 75% of our folks. So I just, somebody asked me just this morning, John Fornerado, how many members do we bring in in a year? And typically it's about 50. Typically it's about 50. And out of those 50, we confirm 35 to 40 people in their faith, public affirmation of their faith, which, where they've been formally instructed and have a chance to affirm their baptism. Um, and so we see, I would say that we see at Grace probably 20, 25 adults come to faith because they either have never been involved in a church or were involved in a church and lapsed, went away from it for a long time, right, long time. And so, and so they're, right, essentially coming back to the church. So what's interesting about this thing, why am I telling you that? Oh. Why am I telling you all this? <laughs> yeah, of how of people of the of the growth young, of the church. Young churches. Yeah. Oh my goodness! Why am I telling you this? Why not? Probably because Aquila. I am still a little loopy, you guys. This week was not a good week for me. It was just a bad week. Um, it feels good to actually be able to stand up in front of you. Um, In any event, in any event, the idea of being able to free up a, a pastor to be able to serve what they're doing, the first hints that hurts we get of it is with the formation of a deacon board, right? So at first, the, the apostles were all serving widows and orphans and the needs, and they were doing serving tables and do, bringing food, and so then they form that deacon board, and that deacon board says, essentially they say it's not good that Peter and our, the apostles should be waiting on tables Let's form something to take that away from them so that they can then focus in on the preaching of the word and teaching. And so that's great. That's the first hint we get of it. And so we find in churches, churches strive towards that model in the early church. So whenever you hear people say to you things like, Jesus never intended to form a church. It's just patently false. He calls it. He's the one who uses the term ecclesia. You know, and on this uh, rock I will build my ecclesia. 
The gates of hell will not stand against it. Whoever sins you release, they are released. The purpose of the church is to grant the forgiveness of sins. The purpose of the church is to reach people that they might know their sins are forgiven in Jesus Christ and have eternal life. That's the purpose of the church. And so, um, and so we, we, we know that Jesus intended to form a church. He intended to make disciples. He intended to create them into bodies. How they form themselves and what structure they use and so forth, that's when it's not dictated to us. We kind of make that up as we go. But, but and from the very, very beginning, people form churches. And when they be finally have the opportunity to do it, they find places to meet. They find a center in which they can operate out of. It might be a person's home. It might be a place of business. But they find, it might even be catacombs, right, when, think, when they're illegal. But from the very beginning, Christians have always banded together. Christianity is not a me and Jesus event. It is, but it's way, way more than that. If you just stay at me and Jesus, you're stuck at a very, very elementary point. Right? Very elementary point. The challenge is working together, especially putting a bunch of sinners working together. <laughs> right? That's the challenge. Redeemed sinners. But, I mean, that's the challenge. But, it, but from the very beginning, the church is always banded together, gathered together. And as churches have grown, they have sought the way to have a clergy, which would be students of the word, who could serve them as well and possibly as they can, as much as they can, so that they are available whenever the needs of the body arise. That's been the intent of the church from the beginning. You find it right from, right from the very start. So what you see, but at the same time, clergy have to be careful. I have said this here. When we went through our economic downturn, I mean, I said to our council and to our board of elders more than once, I said, look, if we can't afford the staff and you can't afford my salary, you pay me what you can pay me and I'll go 10 bar somewhere. Or I'll teach. Or I'll do something. But we will do the ministry that God gives us the resource to do. If that's what it takes, that's what it takes. And so I think you also have to have a clergy that has that attitude too. Because to be frank, today in our church, in rural communities, it is now becoming almost impossible for churches in smaller communities to afford to pay what a pastor needs to get paid to live. To live, you know, just live right in the middle. And that's what you're always hoping for, live right in the middle of your congregation. You know, you should be... And when, even when I have calls and I'm being interviewed, people will say, well, what do you want to be paid? And I say, look, the number is irrelevant to me. You know your community. I need to not worry about it. That's my, always my comment. If you're wanting me to serve you full-time, I need to not worry about it. If you don't have the resources to do it, I just need to know that so that you know I have to pick up another piece of work somewhere. <clears throat> sell house, sell houses, tend bar. I like the tending bar idea, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I had a lot of opportunities to do ministry in those settings. Um, yeah. And so this one, if you look in the middle of your page, Priscilla and Aquila, this is a worker-priest model of ministry. I mention this to you just because it's biblically known, and it, is, was, it, was a, it was also a common practice. Until a church could afford a pastor, they were what were called worker-priests, what we would call them. So they, they worked for a living and then preached on Sunday, had Bible classes and instruction, and shared their faith in their workplace, you know, things like that. That model, by the way, is one that our denomination is finally grappling with and saying we think we probably actually need to work towards supporting that model. That a person who has a, who works, like so for instance, this might be very appealing to a certain group of people to say, we can pay you about, about a third of a salary and we can pay health coverage. 
would you be willing to come and work in our community, work at the Home Depot, you know, be a Lyft driver, be a bartender, be a substitute teacher in the public schools, whatever, and serve us in that way. That's the model that we're now moving towards. This model that you see here, this one is going away in, in, in all denominations. It's, it's shrinking, 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 shrinking. So our district president constantly tells churches, if you have a full-time pastor and you're afford to do it, just praise God, you know, and then hope he does his job, you know, uh, that you're getting your money's worth out of it. <clears throat> so anyway, Paul is that model. So he, he makes tents with Priscilla and Aquila when Paul and Silas and Timothy show up, or Paul and Silas uh, come, come, sorry, Silas and Timothy arrive, then he's freed up to go back to preaching and teaching. And that, to me, is a key thing. I, I'm working on this with my staff right now, for example, because I tell them, what, this is a key principle of teams and leadership, I think. Your people should do the things for which they're uniquely gifted at doing. If they're uniquely gifted, they should do those things and not be distracted by other, other stuff. That's a hard thing to do sometimes, though. So it's a hard challenge. But that's what's happening here. Paul is doing it that. And his focus is on the Gentiles. He's now shifted his attention because of the uh, adversarial relationship he's had. So Priscilla and Aquila have significant impact. Um, they were in Rome. And so we, we, we do believe and understand that there is a Christian community in, in Rome that predates this, that is very early. So we think that some of those Jews on Pentecost who became Christians, who accepted the word, went back to Rome and began and founded that church um, because out of all the cities, that one had a significant Jewish population. And so they would have been at the Pentecost festival, the Passover, and, and so they would have gone back with that same message. So Priscilla and Aquila are part of that, and they were expelled from Rome. Rome Anti-Semitism, isn't it troubling to you all, the incidences of anti-Semitism that we're seeing in our nation yeah. and in Europe now? Mm -hmm. it, it, it just almost boggles the mind. It really boggles the mind. I, and, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. Day tomorrow, which I think is cool. I think it's good. Um, I, I'm not about honoring the man. Just like I, I told everyone, hey, we should have Martin Luther birth, Martin Luther birthday off. Yeah. Don't you think? Would that yeah. be good? <clears throat> yeah. I don't, uh, he's just a bag of sack of maggots anyway, too, right? That's what he calls himself. <laughs> but he was a redeemed. And, you know, that kind of person. And so what I'm thankful for for Martin Luther King Jr. Day actually is a reminder of how foolish and silly it is to measure the value of a person based on their tribe or their race or their background or their history, how foolish that is, and yet it persists, doesn't it? Yes. It persists. And so I think we constantly need to remember and, and repent and seek, you know. Sometimes, I, you know, it's funny. I thought, I genuinely thought when I was in college, I thought racism was done. And I grew up in New York City. And so, because I went to school with... I mean, I bet you we had 15 different races in our Lutheran high school. I mean, it was third of our of ours was was uh, African American, probably 15% Asian. We were maybe 35% white, 40% maybe. I mean, it's really interesting. It's really mixed. And Puerto Rican, that was the large Hispanic Latino community in in uh, in New York. And boy, we got along. I mean, we really did. It was really weird. Who cared? Right. It was just really weird. But boy, it has not gone away. And so I think we need to be, and that to me, let me tell you what principle Christian wise, from a Christian perspective, it violates so tremendously, is Jesus Christ has absolutely counted every single human being on the planet of equal value. 
and that means of tremendous value. So much value that he gave himself on the cross. Now, having said that, a person's intrinsic worth does not always translate to how we behave. And so we need to treat one another with dignity and respect and sometimes be patient when things don't go the way and when behavior doesn't happen with myself and with others, right? <clears throat> so we live in an inherently impatient time. But race, anyway, so I think of this particular time, and so uh, what Paul is doing now is focusing on the Gentiles, even though he understands uh, the, um, how, the, how the grace, and how, the, how Jesus and Messiah have come through uh, the people of Israel. So Paul is freed up, so with Priscilla and Aquila, they are in Rome, but they're expelled. Okay, and I forget which Caesar it is. Does it say in the notes Claudius. here? Claudius, yeah. So no, Nero does the same thing. Um, he does that. He has an expulsion and expels Christians at the same time, usually because they couldn't tell the difference. And so at that time, so Nero <coughs> blames, you know, the burning of Rome on Christians. And, uh, <coughs> and so both Christians and Jews get expelled. This happens at various points in the Roman Empire at various locations, different cities, different provinces, where Jews were just expelled. So it's a troubling, troubling trend that has been persistent throughout. It is, to be honest, you can, it is absolutely one of those ways where I say, this is one of the marks that God had promised to his people, that is God had promised to his people. And so the rest of the, the, rest of the world has, has taken offense at that and has constantly tried to exterminate these people. Even just in the Bible itself, we see all kinds, of all kinds of moments where the obliteration of the Jews is planned and sought to be executed. God preserves his people. And so we're thankful for that. But, so Priscilla and Aquila make their way to Corinth. So that's their, their, <coughs> their refuge. But we know from them that there's a church in Rome. Paul then develops this great yearning to go to Rome. This is, he expresses this numerous times. I'm ready to go to Rome. And the way he gets there is to die. You know, that's how he makes his way to Rome. But has a fruitful and productive ministry in Rome, even though he's under arrest the whole stinking time. You know, he's awaiting his execution the whole time he's there. Some of the time is went under house arrest, and he has lots of freedom. He has lots of freedom to write letters, receive visitors, and then other parts of it are in a dungeon, the Mamertine dungeon, which is as bad a dungeon as, as you can imagine. It's dungeon. Um, probably involved all kinds of pain and things like that. So... He has that experience in Rome. So Priscilla and Aquila equip. So here's what happens. Paul honors Priscilla and Aquila. We believe that they have had a longer journey with Christ than Paul has. They've had a longer journey with Christ, as our guess. And so not only do they become mentors to Paul, and my guess is that I, I, this, I'm just guessing, you guys. This is me speculating. I think Priscilla and Aquila take some of the edges off of Paul. Paul is edgy. Paul is like one of those single guys who wants to lecture you on parenting, but he's never had kids. <laughs> right? Or wants to lecture you on your marriage, never been married. You know, I had one of my dear, dear friends, Bob Fossum. I just adored him. He, and he was here. You know him. And, and Bob was our youth guy, you know, and he was good at it. But I used to tease him. I said, dude, you don't got any kids. <laughs> <laughs> You're missing some pieces here. We need to rely on the rest of us to help you out here. And he was so gracious and humble and, gr and kind about it. He was really good. But it's, it's so I think Priscilla and Aquila play a really significant role in the social emotional formation of Paul. 
They spend significant time together. The reason I, I suggest this is we do know, in point of fact, that Priscilla and Aquila have a significant role in a man named Apollos. Let's look at let's look at it. Chapter 18. Okay. First, uh, chapter 18, verse uh, 18, Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. He left the brothers and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, is this right? Is this the section I'm looking at? Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah. <coughs> after spending, oh yeah, <coughs> verse 23, after spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there, traveled from place to place through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening the disciples. Meanwhile, verse 24, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, that's Greece, Corinth, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. On arriving, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted the Jews in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. So we have this interesting character who, who comes, and he's referenced several times. Paul talks about him in 1 Corinthians when there's divisions in the church in Corinth, so that's why we think he spends a lot of time in Corinth. There's divisions among you, and for some reason I believe you, because some of you got to prove that you're better than the other guy. And he says, so some of you say, I belong to Christ, I belong to Peter, I belong to Paul, I belong to Apollos. He mentions him there, right? And so I'm a follower of, right? I'm kind of a groupie. I'm a Paul groupie, or I'm a Apollos groupie. And Apollos clearly is a brilliant man, a brilliant apologist for the faith, but it's Priscilla and Aquila who take him under their wing and who teach him, and he receives it. That's the mark that I think is, is to be noted. Here's a guy who clearly, right, because you are like, he isn't like birthed as a Christian. <clears throat> He's had a life before this. And he clearly was a very intelligent, very accomplished, very brilliant man. And so he came to faith in Christ only through the baptism of John, though. What, is that, what do you think that means? He only knew the baptism of John. What do you think? Yeah, there you go, right? John's was a baptism of repentance. This is a far too simplistic way for me to say this. We could go much in detail. In fact, we do in seminary on the baptism of John, baptism of Jesus. But in general, baptism of John, repentance, baptism of Jesus is forgiveness, right? Because think about what John says. Behold the Lamb of God. How's it finish? It's the it's in the world, right? So it's a forgiveness thing. So he's pointing to Jesus because Jesus is the one who forgives. John's is kind of like a preparatory one. Now, I had seminary profs who would argue with me and say, any baptism is a good baptism. You know, I mean, in terms, of, in terms of a godly baptism here, because it's leading you to that spot. But whatever. I think this point, this makes the point that Apollos' understanding was limited. And Priscilla and Aquila had to fill him in. And what I th here's my guess what they did was, they probably brought him aside and said, you are awesome. This is amazing. What a blessing that we have a brother in the Lord like this. Did you know there's more? <laughs> you know, I mean, that's how I would have said it. There's more. You know, I, in fact, this is an interesting side note. I don't, I don't, I don't like arguing with my, my the other pastors in town about like baptism and about communion because this is really the statement I say to them all the time. I go, look, I get what you're doing and I see how it's in the scripture. There's just more. 
I just, there's more. And I think that's great. I'm not saying that you're wrong. No. I'm not saying it's bad. Mm -hmm. There's just more there in Holy Communion. There's more there in baptism, you know. So anyway, <clears throat> it's, um, so that's the role that Aquila and, and Priscilla play. We don't know much more about them beyond. Yeah, Don. So dealing with all this in this time period with Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos, and all this, is, this, is this the time period? Is this what Jesus was referring to? Because it always baffled me a little bit when I was a kid when Jesus said, you know, greater things that I do, you're going to go out and do. So I'm waiting, like, are you going to, like, float people in the air and then heal them or something? But it, it, is it the formation of the church and so. these things? Of, oh, I would agree 100%. That? Well, that's how we read it. What we read is Jesus, in fact, remember when Jesus says, it's good for you that I go, to, go away. I've got to go away because right. I've got to send the Holy Spirit. Because if, I, if it's just limited to me, I can only interact with this many people. I, and so I need the Holy Spirit so that he can dwell in every person's heart by faith. So, yes, that's what I think. I mean, because we often think of greater, this is the funniest thing. What is the greatest thing in Jesus' mind in his earthly ministry? What is the greatest thing? Salvation. Yeah, salvation, Save, yes. Saving. Yes, you're right. You'll, you'll, as soon as I say faith. it, you'll do faith. Faith. Right? Greater faith have I. I've never seen such great faith. I mean, he just is blown away by faith. Right? Yeah. It's not the miracle. He's walking on water, and the disciples are all freaking out, and he's going, this is no big deal, you guys. <laughs> right? I mean, it's no big deal. I mean, I'm the, I'm the creator of all things. You think I can't manage creation? You know, health and, and uh, wind and waves, stuff like that. You know, food. <laughs> you know, they're just freaking out because they're just, uh. and he goes, it's belief, it's faith that is the greatest of all things. So all heaven, I think about it again, John, Luke chapter 15. All heaven rejoices when one, one, person. Person. one person comes to faith. Because that's what that is, right? Faith is one sinner repenting. So if all heaven will bust out in a party for just one of us repenting of our sins and accepting God's grace, that's a pretty big deal. I don't know if all heaven rejoiced when Jesus walked on water. Maybe. I don't. I, for them, I'm thinking, if the, if the company of heaven is watching that, it's like, of course he did that. Right? Yeah. Duh. You, know? <laughs> you guys get impressed by the dumbest things. <laughs> so anyway, so that's the story that we get there. Now, during the time in Corinth, so this is chapter 18. If you look at this page in Thessalonica, as I say, I believe Paul writes Galatians first. Others will say this. It's okay, either way. But in all of these cases, Paul sits down and writes a letter because he's not physically with them. Right? Thessalonica is like 75 miles to the north, 100 miles to the north. But he's getting reports from people. One of the things that this tells you is communication and travel and things, that happened a lot in the ancient world. Letters were delivered and merchants made, I mean, they, they made money and they did politics and they moved armies and people moved around. The Pax Romana, the peace of Rome that the Roman Empire had, created an opportunity for this kind of communication to happen. And so Paul is writing to Galatians clearly, right? He's been there to Galatians. They're free for freedom. Christ has set you free. Praise God. And then all of a sudden, here come these guys saying, oh, no, got to be circumcised. And Paul gets a report of this, that these guys are going back to being circumcised and refusing to have bacon anymore. And he's going, what are you, who bewitched you? You goombas, what are you doing? <laughs> I mean, if a, if a different angel came to you with a different gospel, you should reject it. I gave you the gospel, right? And so for freedom, Christ has set you free. Why would you be bound again under the, under the law, right? Be bound again by slavery. So Paul addresses that issue. 
in First and Second Thessalonians, let's take them separately. What's the issue that Paul was addressing? Okay. So go ahead and turn to First Thessalonians, because in your and not that we're going to look through it verse by verse or anything like that. Thessalonians, there's a bunch of T letters in the back. So, here's what they're grappling with. Here's the year 51. Here's the resurrection of Christ, right? So we now have two decades that have passed of the gospel being shared. We know that, we know that, um, that, that this is a young church, right? That this is a the young church. So they have been shared with people who have come to faith in this era... And they have come, and those people have planted a church here in Thessalonica. Remember where this is? Kind of up on that, on the Aegean Sea, up there Macedonia, towards Macedonia, a little bit north, in that inner piece across the water from them is what we would call Serbia and Armenia and those areas, right? So Thessalonica, they're a young church, just been around a few years. And their people, now people have started to die, just naturally, either from persecution or natural causes. Right? Remember, when you became a Christian in this era, you immediately put yourself at great risk. Because here's the situation. It's not so much that Christians required you to get a tattoo on your forehead, or that you had to wear a cross everywhere, or that you had to, whatever, you had to make a public display of worship, or you had to do mission work door to door. That's None of that is the case. The problem is, every year, you have to make a loyalty sacrifice to Caesar. You have to claim him as God, and you have to make a loyalty sacrifice to Caesar. This is the issue for Christians. And so Christians, with their conscience, are going, I can't do that. I can't say that Caesar is Lord or God. I can't say he's a God. There's one God only. Now, the Jews had been given an exemption because they were a legal, recognized religion. Now, just because you're legal and recognized doesn't mean that people don't hate you. They still were hated because they didn't have to make the, right, the, 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 the Caesar offering. So people were offended by that and put off by that. So that's why Jews continued to be oppressed too. But here come these Christians and they're not able to make this. So if you committed to Christianity, you're, you put yourself at risk. And it always depended on who was running the show from Rome and who your local governor and the local chief of police was. That's how it always works, seems like, right? So people are starting to die, <coughs> and they're not being resurrected. And this new, these brand new Christians are going, wait, wait, you told us. You get what I'm saying? Yeah. Do you see where I'm going with this? You told us that we would live forever. You told us that we would have eternal life. You told us that even death could not separate us. Well, that comes later, that's Romans. But you told us those things. And uh, that because Christ lives, we'll live also. So what's going on, right? And we're being persecuted. Isn't God on our side? So here are the themes that you get. You can read this yourself, both of these. These are just intros, I think they're pretty good. Um, but this is kind of neat. So I, the reason I like this class that I'm telling you is I'm showing it to you within the course of Paul's life and ministry. So here he is planting these churches. Now he's moved on to Corinth. 
and he's moving on to, you know, he's in Corinth for a year and a half or so, and he gets word back, these guys are in trouble. These brand new Christians in this new church, and Timothy's up there trying to run the show, but Timothy's a young man. And that's always a challenge, that we do not let our young people have enough gravitas, or they haven't earned it sometimes, right? Sometimes you just got to live long enough to have a little bit, little bit of gravitas. Um, <clears throat> and so he writes that, sits and writes this letter. What are his themes, right? So if you look in the first place, when they're faced with their mortality, how do you uh, react to this? So he writes this letter just a short time after its founding. It's maybe just a year after its founding that he's now writing this letter to them to encourage them. So he wants to uh, praise them and encourage them to remind them of the hope. And so you can see how he lays out the letter, but here's the core of the message is exhortation and comfort. So I just wanted you to note this. This is a little bit interesting. He's founded a church and almost immediately, within just a matter of months, he's writing a letter to them knowing what they're going to be facing or getting reports of the things that they're facing and the questions that are arising. I, it's the same thing here. I remember I baptized a guy, he was probably 60, and he had lived a good hard life and wonderful. It was just a wonderful journey for him. But I remember he'd come to me, I remember about, about a year later, and he was all troubled, wanted to have an appointment with me. And he sat down, and I think I've told you this story before, but he sits in my office very seriously and says to me, I love being a Christian, but when do I stop swearing? I mean, really, it was on his heart. It just burdened him so badly. And, I, and it was interesting, though. Yet You get what I'm saying? This is kind of the same kind of question. Hey, I'm baptized. I'm a Christian. When does this change? Right? When is this all different? And what was so cool was to be able to say to him, think about how you've changed so much. You know? I mean, it was funny. Anyway, it was just a good thing. But this is the kind of thing that he's trying to address. So he has, if you look on the right side of the page, right? Here's the blueprint. Faithfulness to the Lord, the first half of the letter, about being faithful to the Lord and then being on watch for the Lord. Sorry, this is Paul's first letter to the church in Thessalonica. It's this side and it's the right side of the page. Paul's first letter and then the other side is Paul's second letter. And it, by the way, it just comes a couple months later. It's just a few months later. So first letter to there, the blueprint is being faithful to the Lord and being on, on watch for the Lord. And then you see the mega themes below. Persecution, Paul's ministry, hope, and being prepared. So he acknowledges this is what's happening. We understand it. And Paul tells them, he shares with them some of the own persecution that he himself has had to do. I mean, in Corinth, the man leaves Corinth having been stoned and flogged and is left for dead. Seriously, the disciples believe he's dead. He's like in a coma when they find him. That's the kind of suffering that Paul's gone through, in addition to other things. But the key verse from this is really verse 13, right? In First Corinthians, I mean, chapter 5, verse 4, 4, chapter 4, verse 13. <coughs> Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. That's the theme verse of this book, in my opinion. I think verse 14 is great. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. So, but we do not want you to grieve as those who have no hope. 1 Thessalonians is all about hope. Hope in the promise. 2 Thessalonians, that he writes just a few months later, is almost like this. So, have you ever had this? Did he, 
Like, you know, you'll say, man, that was a great sermon, right? You might come out. Well, maybe you don't ever say it. But let's say you come out and you say, man, that was a great sermon. You're sitting around lunch and you're talking. And you say, well, man, wasn't it great he said this? And the other person says, no, he didn't say that. You know, or another person says, well, yeah, he said that, but I heard it this way. So you, there might be four of you at the lunch table, but you're here four different ways. That's what Second Thessalonians is. Let me be clear. That's what Second Thessalonians is. Let me be clear. I have to tell you, I cannot tell you how many times in my ministry somebody has come out and said to me, man, when you said this thing about this and such and so, that just really touched my heart and it blessed me. And I go, thank you. And in my mind I go, hmm, I never said that. I mean, seriously, I never said that. That's the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit was working through what we shared to be able to have the word to your heart that you need to hear. I'm not offended or upset or anything. I'm like delighted. Thank God. But I, there are many times, not many there are some times when I sit there and I go, hmm, I never said that. So Paul is doing a clarifying action in 2 Thessalonians, in which in that one he's saying, let me reiterate, this is the hope of Christ's return. Christ will return. He is coming back. But along the way, there are going to be these bumps. And he even talks about like the Antichrist and, you know, the, I think it's the abomination that brings desolation. He does some eschatology pieces too. But he's more clear. He fleshes it out in 2 Thessalonians. So that's how those letters lie out. So today, we're going to stop. We've got a letter from him on Christian, being a Christian does not mean you have to be circumcised. It's grace and grace alone. It is only grace. And then, Christ, there's hope for the future. Don't grieve as if there's no hope, because Christ has indeed risen from the dead. And then secondly, there's a hope for the future. Christ will return, and there will be challenges along the way. Those are the three letters we have so far. And now he's headed back um, to Antioch, or to Ephesus, and then... Caesarea and then back up again, and we'll pick it up from there. All right, questions? Thanks. Let's say the blessing. The Lord bless us and keep us. The Lord make his face shine upon us and be gracious unto us. The Lord lift up his countenance upon us and give us peace. Hey everyone, this Saturday, January 25th at 8 a.m., join us for State of the Church, where you will hear all about the visions and the ministries that we are looking forward to for the 2020 year. And on the Sunday following, January 26th, we are having our annual Camp Perkins Chili Cook-Off. You can bring chili and compete, or bring your dollars and vote, or both. Also, uh, you can reserve a table for Trivia Night on February 8th, the night begins at 6.30. Trivia starts at 7. Tables are $150 for 8 people and $20 per person as individuals, and we will pair you with people as you arrive. If you have any questions or would like to reserve a table or purchase a ticket, please contact Ryan Stradwell.